You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Melanie Morrison. She's the founder and executive director of Allies for Change, a network of anti-oppression educators who share a passion for social justice and a commitment to creating and sustaining life-giving relationships and communities. Currently, she is working on a manuscript entitled Letters from Old Screamer Mountain. Her mother, Eleanor, along with some friends, stayed a weekend with Lillian Smith on Old Screamer Mountain around 1939. And that weekend, quote, was an unforgettable turning point um, in the 18-year-old's life. Dr. Morrison's manuscript contains letters that she penned to her mother um, when she made a pilgrimage to the Lillian E. Smith Center for a residency in 2012, and she's been back a, a few times after that. Today, we will talk about Allies for Change, the impact of Lillian Smith on Dr. Morrison, her mother and her father, and more. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Morrison. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really delighted to be here. We're delighted to to speak with you too, especially with all these connections that you've talked about with your mother and father and Lillian Smith and everything. So let's just jump right in. Okay. The manuscript you're working on, Letters from Old Screamer Mountain, you know, you're Mm -hmm. writing to your mother from Screamer Mountain. You said that these are letters that you pinned to her. Um, and you mentioned that her weekend visit to Lillian and Paula, you know, on the mountain had a profound impact on her. Yes. And you've also mentioned to me how much of an impact Lillian, even though we, your father never met her or went to the mountain, how much Lillian and Paula had an impact on him too. So can you talk about the impact of, of Lillian and Paula and their work on your mother, your father, and then on to you? I mean, yes. really over the past eight decades, if we think about it. That's right. That's right. Yes, thank you for asking that question. Uh, I want to say that I was absolutely euphoric when I stumbled upon the Lillian E. Smith Center in Clayton, Georgia. It was the winter of 2011, and I'd been searching online for an affordable writing residency. And, And then to find... I did not know that the Lillian, what had been Laurel Falls Camp and on Old Screamer Mountain, that the Lillian Smith Center was still in existence. I had no idea. And I planned to spend those three weeks doing intensive reading and writing, which I did, about the intergenerational legacies of lynching and how that reign of terror remains largely unacknowledged by the descendants of its white perpetrators. So it felt like the perfect location to do that work, to do that work. Because I had grown up my whole life hearing stories about Lillian Smith, Laurel Falls Camp, and the groundbreaking work that Smith did in the South. Her photograph, hung in our family home, and her name was spoken with reverence. When people asked if she was kin to us, my father was fond of saying, well, Lillian Smith is not 
a biological ancestor, but she is part of that great cloud of witnesses that helps us to carry on, to carry on, he would say. In both of my parents expressed a deep indebtedness to Smith. I, this is something I really appreciate about neither my, of my parents are still alive, but I continue to be um, profoundly aware of the legacies that I have inherited from them. And one of the things that they did was share with their children events that had turned their world upside down, broken new understanding of the world open for them, and change them. And that was, that was an important thing to hear as a young person and to experience, thing, experience them continuing to change throughout their lives. So Lillian Smith was part of that legacy. They had discovered her essays while in college in the late 1930s. My father at Birmingham Southern in Birmingham, Alabama and my mother at Georgia Wesleyan in Macon, Georgia. And like the girls at Laurel Falls Camp, they experienced the foundations of their worlds just shaking as they devoured their essays because they had never encountered a white voice like hers a white voice calling for a desegregated South where every form of white supremacy and racial violence would be outlawed. Yeah. That, and I wanna say my, my father, I know at that point was reading W.E.B. Du Bois and other black authors in the privacy of his bedroom because it caused uh, some real distress in the family when he would share who he was reading. But it got to also encounter a white writer who was saying some of these things was profoundly important for my parents as white Southerners. And then in her junior year at Wesleyan College, I'm estimating that was, that was around 1939. My mother was a part of a small group of students that a professor from Wesleyan College brought to North Georgia to spend what my mother remembers as a winter weekend with Lillian Smith and Paula Snelling at Laurel Falls Camp. And those two and a half days were indeed just a, a life-changing time in my mother's young life. As she and the other students stayed up late, listening to Lillian read from her manuscripts and talk about the shriveled up heart of whiteness. I wanna also say that an, another impact on my mother as a, like 18 year old young woman was to come to a place and to witness two women, two women running a magazine, running a camp, mm -hmm. holding retreats like this, involved with um, the freedom struggle 
with black organizations in the South and so forth. And there were no men around. <laughs> I mean, that just blew my mother's mind and made a deep impression on her. It was like for her, wow, women can do this. Yeah. Women can do this. And so that also made a real impact on her as an 18 year old young woman. And then the following year, 1940, my parents met in Black Mountain, North Carolina at a YWYMCA regional gathering. Which were also just starting to be integrated about that period too. Actually, my father was involved in helping to organize one of the first regional, interracial regional yeah, gatherings. Thing, Talladega thing, College. One thing hopefully that, that we can talk about on, on a future podcast is I, I was able to go to Camp Marywood and talk to their archivist and kind of the the integration of the YWCA and, and the, the, the girls camping organization specifically. Okay, okay. So I that, that was a really kind of interesting story, which also Lil was definitely a part of because she spoke at some of these yes. too. Yes. Well, you know, I, it's interesting that you say that because I, I know a little more about my father's involvement in the YMCA and the YMCA, believe it or not, yeah. <laughs> also was doing, um, it, it, depending on where it was, some racial justice work. It wasn't just gyms. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so anyway, my I won't tell the whole long story about <laughs> how my father and mother met at, you know, there were, I don't know, a couple hundred at least um, students there. But he met my mother and he was, he was immediately smitten uh, by her um, unaffected forthright manner and so forth, but it was particular, particularly her outspoken condemnation of segregation. And the fact that she so frequently quoted Lillian Smith that won my father's heart. And as he was fond of telling his children later in life, he told us about meeting her in Black Mountain. And he said, you know, well, of course, her mother was stunningly beautiful, but it was also her intellectual or Cuban and her passion for justice. And just imagine, just imagine, Eleanor not only read Lillian Smith, she'd met her, she'd met her. So that, that was a bonding influence. Uh, and my parents uh, were engaged a year later and they went north to attend seminary. There's so much that you said that that sticks out, and I was looking for for a letter a second ago when you when you talked about that moment and your parents being forthright with you about those breaking moments that yes. opened them up. Yes. And talking about your mother going to the camp, and I've heard countless stories from countless people who I who have basically you know. said that I was there and I only met Lillian Smith and Paula for like two, two and a half days, a weekend. And the profound impact that had on me. But all that made me think too, I was reading some letters earlier today and Rose Gladney's How Am I To Be Heard, looking at some stuff between uh, Smith and Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm. And what really stood out to me was one, the, the time that your mother went to the camp in the late thirties. Yes. And also the fact that Lillian with that journal 
I know that earlier, I think she's dealing with these issues on her own, but that journal, I think, really kind of pushed her to deal with them more in a, in a straightforward manner. And the camp, I think that's kind of when we start to see a shift in the camp, too. If I, th if I think about it, I got to dig more into that. But she wrote this to Eleanor Roosevelt in 43. I have been trying for six or seven years to prove to white, and this is about the camp, specifically yeah. about her campers and, and her work. Yes. So six or seven years would have been the time she was writing the journal because it started in 36, right? Okay. I've been trying for six or seven years to prove to white Southern women of my social class that we can speak out plainly about racial democracy, that we can take a public stand against discrimination and yes. even against segregation without losing too much prestige and without suffering martyrdom. It seems very important to me for a Southern woman to demonstrate this successfully. And then this stuck out to me too. The first thing that stuck out, of course, is the years. Like I'm saying that, that yes. this is when she's really becoming for, um, yes. out front with it. But she ends with saying, because I am known for my work with children of wealthy Southern families, and I've seen lists of some of the some of the girls who went there, and they were prominent families and oh, yes. even yeah. politicians. I have had a fortune, I've had a fortunate position in the South, and I have made the most of it. And she's so out front that we can do this without it doesn't take much essentially to do it, right? And the importance of it. But like I said, the key that kind of stuck out to me was that that journal is a very important part of her formulation. Okay. I would say. Not um, the only thing, but a very important yeah, part, I would say. That was going on already. It doesn't surprise me in terms of what my mother heard that weekend yeah. in the late 30s. And then, you know, I had gone in 2012. It's important to just anchor this in what was going on in 2012, historically. Um, I was there at the Lillian Smith Center in July of 2012. That was six months after the killing of Trayvon Martin and the birth of uh, Black Lives Matter. And it was partly the killing of Trayvon Martin that inspired me to do more work. I'd been thinking for some time about wanting to write essays on the silence around the legacies of lynching and the intergenerational legacies of lynching. And then I come to, um, and I mean, I was aware, of course, about Strange Fruit, Killers of the Dream, um, that Lillian had been writing about the horrific history of lynching. But while I was at the, uh, in, living in the Peeler cottage, I was rereading her letters. And I read something also online about the reenactment that takes place in Monroe, Georgia. I was reading about the 1946 lynching of four black people, two men and two women, pulled from a car, beaten, taken to a river, and then their bodies riddled with bullets. It was a lynching. It was a lynching. And as I was just, I, I, I was deeply moved by how Lillian confronted that in real time in 1946, speaking candidly with the campers. Right. And also, not only speaking candidly with the campers, but then writing in the Laurel Leaf newsletter. 
which she sent to the parents of the camper, she told them, the girls and I have been talking, the campers and I have been having extensive conversations about the Monroe lynching. And the campers have asked many difficult questions. And I want to quote to you what she says to those parents. She says, they want to know, especially if the women who were lynched had children. They want to know how those children are feeling and who were looking after them and how they must feel about living in America. And how can they feel good about toward, uh, how can those children of the people lynched feel good toward white people when white people have done these dreadful things to their mothers? Now, I imagine that some of the parents were squirming when they got laurel leaf uh -huh. uh, or, and others were enraged. But Lillian didn't let it just end there either. She challenged them to speak candidly with their daughters about the violence that segregation of white supremacy foment. And um, she said, you know, children are gonna fail, white and black are gonna fail to thrive as long as white supremacy continues to go unchecked. They can't grow very much if we surround them with fears and dreads and feelings of superiority and taboos that shut other human beings away from them. I just, you know, that she was doing this in the 30s and in the 40s. And I think what's, I pulled this up because I was actually looking at that, at that newsletter earlier today too. And that was the exact moment I was thinking about. Because what really strikes me about that Laurel Leaf, from a rhetorical perspective and thinking about her position too, is the way that she constructs that. Because mm -hmm. she focuses that whole first half on what the, what the girls are doing at the camp. You know, yeah. all the good things. And then, oh, yes, exactly. bam, yeah. there's this moment right before from where you quoted where she says, every once in a while, we look, this is on the second page of a two-page newsletter. Every once in a while, we look up from our magic mountain where everything is so happy and gay and suddenly realize that everything is not so happy and gay for other children, other places. And then she goes into yes. questions that the girls were asking. And thinking about that, you know, she even says at the end, um, I think that the, I think the most heartbreaking and frustrating thing for all of us who feel decent inside ourselves is to know what to do. If we don't f find some way for our children to express their kindly feelings, I feel that they may find it easier psychologically not to have decent feelings. Yes. Throw instead a hard shell of indifference and blindness to protect themselves from questions that are hard to answer. And what I love about her is that she knows that children in education is a viable and important path forward. Yes. Getting, it's getting there. And I think about too, an essay she wrote in, um, I think progressive, the progressive maybe called Children Talking in Progressive Education, a year before in October, 1945, uh -huh. following, following World War II and following the dropping of the bombs on um, yes. Japan. And it's a conversation that she had with the campers, they would have these conversations like once a week, it basically kind of be like their Sunday service where they would just meet and say whatever came to their minds. There's all these discussions about growing up and they talk about racism, they talk about segregation. And then at one point, some of the campers actually ask about, you know, the bombs and ask about the dropping of the bombs. And I just kind of want to read that real quick. It's a, it's a little bit, it's a little long, but I think it's important. 
But coming back to our enemies, the girls who spoke first about Hiroshima said, suppose we felt everything our enemies were feeling. It'd be terrible. You'd never be able to fight them. It'd be like bombing your own family. We'd find it hard to have enemies if we cared about what happens to them. War makes us cut a lot of bridges. We've been spending all our life, and that's Lillian. Yes. I guess that's why some of us are scared of peace. This is the girls. We've got so many bridges to spend back. We've almost forgot how, how folks spend bridges. The girls pause for a moment. If we had been in Hiroshima at a summer camp with other children, that bomb would have fallen on us, wouldn't it? And then Lillian says, yes. Then one of the other girls says, yet we didn't have a thing to do with this war, nor did those children over there either. It doesn't seem quite fair to children. We sat without talking as some of us tried to spin a bridge across the earth of Hiroshima. And then this, I think, is, is very point, poignant from Lillian too, this whole thing. But sometimes geography and distance make it easier not to care. Yeah. And then the girls follow up and say, the men in the plane who dropped that bomb must have been glad they couldn't see below them. Or maybe they've never known a Japanese child, or maybe they just called them yellow monkeys and that made it seem not to matter. Like folks down here say Negroes don't matter. And all of this makes me think too, even even finding out, yes, there's a whole nother story that I found out looking in the archives that there was a woman from Japan who she had over at the camp in the late 30s as a counselor. Yeah, and, there a, and there was a woman writing to her who was a camper at the time, writing, trying to find information about her and didn't know anything, hadn't talked talk to him forever. Mm -hmm. They were in Florida. At a, she was in Florida at some missionary event, so some church missionary event. Mm -hmm. And the woman who was speaking or a woman who was there was a missionary in Japan, right? Yeah. And what was really kind of amazing was they were talking and she was like, the camper was like, well, I'm just gonna ask if she knows this woman, this counselor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so she asked, and the woman was like, yeah, she's my neighbor. Oh. And it, tur it turns out that the counselor went back. And I forgot her name, but she went back and um, was a teacher. And Lillian had people from all over the world come to be counselors yeah. and as campers at the camp. So it wasn't just Georgia Southern teachers and counselors. They mm -hmm. from everywhere. I don't know the extent. But anyways. But the woman went back and she was there at Hiroshima when the bomb, either Hiroshima or Nagasaki when the bombs dropped. And she had to, she walked through the ruins to her parents and, and I think all of her students were killed. Oh, so, yes. Impact, but all of these connections and, yes. and Lillian's discussions with these children, we always yes. want to kind of think that children can't handle these discussions. Mm, it's but so important. It's so important that they, they have more insight them. than we do. She knew that. You know, you you asked about how um, the ripple effects of her impact on my parents, and then also on the work I have done. I just I want to say that um, when I discovered, kind of by accident, that the Lillian Smith Center existed, and then went for my first of four residencies in 2012. I had been facilitating racial justice workshops for 20 years. First through an organization that I actually founded and co-directed with Eleanor Morris and my mother called Leaven, like the stuff that makes bread rise, Leaven, L-E-A-V-E-N. And then later with Allies for Change, a network of anti-oppression educators. But in preparation for the trip, I reread Killers of the Dream, because something 
I want to tell you about my father <laughs> is he could not wait until it was sort of age appropriate to give me certain books that had changed his life. Sounds <laughs> like me with my daughter. You know, and what, what he would always say to me whenever he handed me a book was, he would say, Melanie, whether it was like The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin mm-hmm. or, or Killers of the Dream by Lillian Smith, he'd say, Melanie, I'm going to give you, I'm, I'm going to lend you this book. And after you read it, you're going to say to me, Dad, why didn't you show me this before? <laughs> so Killers of the Dream was one of those books. And, you know, it's something reading it as an adolescent. And then I had read it in the work with my mother. We had used it on some of our pieces of the lesson, that uh, essay in uh, Killers of the Dream and other pieces. But I wanted to read it again because um, I feel like I have had, this may seem a bit presumptuous, but I'm going to say it anyway, a kind of primal, almost mystical connection to that book. And I have written about this, just a few lines I'd like to read actually in the letters from Old Screamer Mountain, if I may. Um, about that connection to that book. Uh, And I write, um, maybe because my father read portions of it to me as a child and quoted and quoted it so frequently from the pulpit, maybe because Lillian Smith did in Killers of the Dream what few white writers had done before her, call upon white people to cease talking about the Negro problem and own that white supremacy and segregation were the source of difficulties besetting the South. Maybe because she displayed such brazen disloyalty to the ironclad norms of white feminine respectability and named the unholy alliance between sin, sex, race, and segregation Maybe because she dared to bear her own soul in autobiographical writing, knowing that critics would dismiss it as unscientific and narcissistic. Maybe because she believed that white people could not brutalize and oppress black people for centuries without enormous costs to themselves. Maybe because she was driven to enumerate those costs describing with scalpel-like precision the shriveled up heart of whiteness, maybe because I share her passion to name from the inside out how racism has shaped and distorted the lives of white people, and maybe because Killers of the Dream was published the year I was born. And, And you reading that makes me think to the opening of that and bringing our conversation full circle as we kind of start to end out that first chapter when I was a child and that first line even its children knew that the South was in trouble yeah yes yes you know extend that out but the focus on children yes I want to say that my mother and I, before we bring things kind of to a close here, I want to say another 
sort of ripple effect, I believe. Not, it's not only Lillian Smith. There are other authors, other um, people have played, of course, uh, a formative role in shaping our commitment to racial justice. But I want to say that um, I feel like the, the piece, the lessons in Killers of the Dream is a profoundly important piece for people today, for white people today to read. Because she talks about these intersecting ideologies of white supremacy, sexism, distorted, I'm, I'm an ordained minister, okay, Christian minister, but there are distorted Christian theologies that reinforced abusive structural power and hierarchies of mind over body. And she just does this profound analysis of that. And um, it describes that the lessons have described how racism, segregation, and white supremacy have profoundly fragmented and damaged white people, as well as, of course, the, describing the the, the violence and degradation perpetrated against black people and black communities. And I, I think it's an important piece to be read today because I think that fragmentation is still very much at play yeah. in those of us who are white. And I wanna say um, that my mother and I 26 years ago launched uh, an intensive seminar for white people called Doing Our Own Work. It's an anti-racism seminar that's six days long, usually held over three months time. And um, it's not a substitute for the most important work, which has to be done in racially diverse groups and settings, but it's a supplement to that to help bring us up to speed so we can come into those conversations and sessions strategizing and so forth in less toxic, fragmented ways. And I have noticed a shift, a really important shift that has to happen in my years, 26 years of facilitating doing our own work. I don't work just with white people. Most of my work is done in racially diverse settings, but in doing our own work, I've learned that there's this really important shift that has to happen. If white people are going to move from being interested in, concerned about racism, move from sort of an interest to being passionately invested in the work of racial justice. Because so many of us who are white, we begin grappling with the reality of systemic racism, thinking that racism is really primarily a people of color issue and not fundamentally about us as well. We come into anti-racism trainings and conferences thinking we're coming for the sake of our friends and colleagues of color or family members who may have been adopted or married into our families. And please understand me, showing up out of solidarity is critically important, absolutely necessary. But there's an important shift that happens. When those of us who are white discover we are also here because our lives, our souls, and the healing of our people depend on the eradication of racism. And until that shift happens, I don't think we grasp 
that the history of racism is also white people's history. Yeah. And that that history has profoundly shaped who we are materially, physically, emotionally, psychically, spiritually. And until that shift happens, we can't articulate what's for stake, what's at stake for us in working to dismantle systemic racism. And we're probably gonna show up for a while and then we're gonna check out. Maybe we'll come back for a little bit and we'll check out. That shift Lillian Smith had made, that shift she understood. And that's why I'm so indebted to her. And that's why I think to end this out, I can't find the exact quote. I was trying to pull it up real quick while you're talking, but in, in the white Christianist conscious, she makes that same point that, that you made earlier, that it's not it's not a black problem, it's a white problem. Yes. We need to start looking at ourselves. Yes. And she makes that point in Growing Into Freedom too, which she wrote in the early 40s, where she basically says that the frame around every black child's neck is around every white child's neck as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, the, the important thing is that we have to think about it as an issue that we have to deal with because perpetuated it right that's right and so. i you know i think it's really important i always want to make the distinction we are not oppressed by racism but we've been profoundly harmed by it right. and um understanding both of those are critically important if we're going to stay with this work thank you for this conversation and for joining us today and, and hopefully we'll get you back down on the mountain sometime soon Oh, I, I long to be there <laughs> on the other side of COVID, huh? Okay. Thank you so much for the work you're doing, Matthew. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.